Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the Fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, September 6th, 2018. This is the episode I was referring to last week when I said we'd get to Jen Hatmaker preaching a sermon. We won't review the whole sermon, but... Yeah, I just remember that not too long ago she was, oh, the bee's knees in evangelicalism. And this woman is emergent. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's a whole lot of deceiving going on and a whole lot of people just subjectively deciding to preach whatever just comes to their own hearts or minds and uh, a substantive, correct exegetical approach to handling God's Word is practically non-existent in many, many, many sectors of American evangelicalism, and we're here to warn you, and we're here to help you understand what God's Word does say, how to rightly handle it, how to protect yourself from those people who are twisting and mangling it. That's what we do here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode. And I'm <laughs> looking at my program sheet going, okay. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah, the, we got too much, too much, uh, too many segments, not enough program. I, I can tell this already. So I'm I'm already making some decisions about what to do with certain segments. So we're going to begin with an emergent church update, and we're going to be listening to Jen Hatmaker preaching about, I don't know, something like inclusion or something like It's a weird 
weird uh, thing. And we're going to go long on this one. And so I, I'm looking at my program sheet going, okay, so something's got to be cut. So, uh, so we're going to go long on this on this segment of Gen Hatmakers and uh, remind everybody that, uh, you know, just a couple years ago, everybody thought, oh, she's the best thing ever. And and uh, women's Bible studies wanted to feature her and things like this. And we're going to note by doing what she's doing, her mere presence in the pulpit is literally forbidden by God's word. And as a result of it, her actions are in defiance of what God has said in his word. And so she is, she's not somebody who is a faithful, Bible-believing Christian. No, far from it. And when you hear her message and you know, kind of the themes and the undertones and the assertions that she's making in the sermon, you'll come to the conclusion this is not somebody who you should be listening to and receiving your biblical instruction from, like far from it. Then what we'll do is we'll t- take a hard turn. Well, not that hard, but we're going to head back to Alabama, and we're going to uh, listen to a portion of the Vision Casting Sunday uh, of uh, Church of the Highlands. And we're not going to be actually listening to Chris Hodges at all. We're going to be listening to what I would consider uh, the uh, the montage of subjectivity. This is the best way I can put it. The montage of subjectivity. And all of these uh, buzzwords and phrases and meaningless platitudes that are put forward in this vision casting uh, video that they uh, that they they broadcast uh, you know, across their multi sites, and we're going to note that the, the, what is said there has nothing to do with how you determine whether or not a church is a good church, a bad church, a church that's uh, that's you know is a, a place that you ought to be, and it's just the again the montage of subjectivity, and then if we have time, and I mean if, yeah, I mean literally if, we're going to listen to Tom Mullins of Christ Fellowship uh, tell us about declarations that determine your destiny. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can get to that. And then hour number two, we're heading down to Elevation Church as we listen to Sarah Jakes Roberts take the stage at uh, Elevation Church, where um, Stephen Furtick holds court. And uh, they've invited Sarah Jakes Roberts to preach, and so we're going to review her sermon titled, Everything Must Go. So that will be today's episode of Finding for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover, so let's get to it. Here we go. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Duck Paget. Today, special guest musician playing the triangle, Jen Hatmaker. Now, this is their rendition of uh, Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. You'll note that they're being led emotionally by the spirit here. They've uh, completely eschewed the idea of modernist, precise definitions of notes. They're just flowing here in their emotions.
avant-garde tour de force. Best way I can put it regarding the uh, postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. So we're, we're heading to Austin New Church. Austin New Church. And uh, we've reviewed sermons from this church before, and we've noted that uh, they're, they fall into the postmodern liberal camp as far as their theology and views and the nonsense that they spew. And uh, what's fascinating here is that this is the church where Jen Hatmaker attends, where she's a member. But not only is she a member, she preaches there from time to time. If you look up their podcast on iTunes, subscribe to it, and go back in history through their sermons, then you can easily spot the sermons delivered by none other than Jen Hatmaker. And God's Word, like I've already pointed out, uh, forbids what it is that we're about to hear her do. We're going to pick up partway through her message titled, How Quickly They Turn, How Quickly We Turn. Here's Jen Hatmaker. Okay, so here's, here's what I was thinking about. Um, sometimes we love what God has to say to us, and sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes um, what his, lives feel, his words feel exciting and regenerating, and sometimes they just feel hard. Yeah, like those passages that say that women are not permitted to exercise authority over a man, or that a woman should remain silent in Christ's church. You know, those, those passages, you mean? And there is literally no better example from today's stories. I think about the way that I have heard from Jesus all of my adult life, really, because sometimes it's true. His teachings are both liberating and they're difficult, right? They're hopeful and they're hard. In some mysterious way, they're free and they're also really costly, right? It's, it's all of it at once. And so he just refuses to be our personal favorite brand of Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Like when I go through the Gospels, I have some favorite Jesuses. Do you know, I, I like this story and this one and this one. I like this tone. I like this moment. That's my favorite Jesus. But if we are going to take the whole counsel of Scripture, if we are going to if we, we've got to take the whole package. And yeah, weird coming from a woman who is preaching a sermon in God's word explicitly forbids her from doing what it is that we're here her doing. And, and so just she's talking about the importance of like accepting the whole package while rejecting part of the package. You know, for instance, First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, you know, comes to mind. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, at the end of the passage, um, it, you know, it, you know, that chapter, it literally says um, that uh, in uh, partway through verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the Torah also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So here she's talking about accept, you know, embracing the whole biblical passage or you know package while rejecting part of the biblical package. Yeah, it's just kind of strange. And, you know, I'm just saying, you know, I've noted that that's uh, bizarre behavior on her part uh, and just weird that she said what she said, we heard her say, unironically. We are going to take the whole counsel of Scripture. If we are going to 
If we, we've got to take the whole package. And some parts of Jesus are really, really hard. Great example. Today, we're going to be in Luke 4. And so this story literally starts with Jesus' hometown, friends, and community absolutely delighted, delighted to see him. And ends somewhere around two hours later with them trying to throw him off a cliff. Okay, so this is like a perfect example of we love you, except not now, right? We like you, but not when you talk like that. And so we're going to unpack this moment in Jesus's life because I actually love this story. I'm mostly just going to spend the time talking about the story this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 4. Um, and if you don't, we'll have them up on the up on the screen for you. So let me tell you where we're at in the in this in Jesus's life. So he has just completed his 40 days in the wilderness where he went to sort of be tempted by Satan. So um, if you're new with us this morning, we're in a series right now where we are exploring. Yeah, he wasn't sort of tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He was in reality tempted by Satan in the wilderness. As well as we can in order, the number of times Jesus quoted the Old Testament. So in each case, we're pulling up the original place that he, those words were spoken and how they apply them to his context. And so um, we do have three different sermons on Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, and they're all pretty amazing. So you can go back and listen to that. But um, so that's where he's been. So after this very sacred season of preparation, Jesus has just begun his public ministry now. So he's at the very beginning of it. And right now, straight out of the wilderness, he is full of fire. He is full of Holy Spirit. I mean, he is is unleashing in a powerful ministry um, right this minute. So he starts, leaves the wilderness, kind of down by Jerusalem, goes up north to Galilee and starts essentially slaying. So let me read this to you. So this is Luke chapter 4. This is where we pick up the story in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. In the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All right. So, first of all, everyone praised him should um, almost always be our signal to, like, stay alert. Because prophets are never praised by everyone. Like, never. So, this just means we need to keep reading. Um, I actually think this is one of Luke's literary tactics in this gospel, like, and everybody loved him. Keep reading. And then, because that is our signal, like, okay, um, too many people like him, so what's he about to do? So this is what happens next. Just the first part of verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay, so let's talk about this for just a second. So now we see Jesus is going home to Nazareth. And this is a little bit fun to think about, actually. Um, The Bible doesn't actually tell us a ton about Nazareth, but we're pretty sure they likely had a chip on their shoulder. We get a couple of clues um, in the rest of Scripture. Like, for example, when Jesus was just starting to assemble his disciples— he calls Nazareth had a chip on its shoulder. Nazareth was about as backwoods, redneck, small, t- tiny, tiny, tiny village as you can possibly get. 
of scripture. Like for example, when Jesus was just starting to assemble his disciples, he calls Philip and Philip runs and gets his friend Nathaniel. And he's like, this guy, like this teacher, this Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I think this is, I think this is a big deal and he's calling us. And, and the scriptures tell us that, that Nathaniel says this, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Right? So we're starting to read between the lines of what it was like to be a Nazarite. Um, in fact, records suggest that Nazarene, a Nazarite is somebody who takes a particular vow according to the old covenant. Yeah, she's, she's showing that she has not done what is necessary to be operating in the role of a pastor. Study showed yourself approved. Husband of one wife. Yeah, things like that, you know. So it's very small. It's very rural. It is neither on the Mediterranean Sea nor the Sea of Galilee. So it's just sort of somewhere in the rocky middle. Um, and so people would have likely been considered simple-minded, certainly uncosmopolitan, um, very removed from the, sort of the centers of commerce um, and industry. And so all... And you just said they had a chip on their shoulder. I don't know anybody who you can be described in those ways that it, you'd sit there and say, and, oh boy, yeah, that whole group, they have a big old chip on their shoulder. Moved from sort of the centers of commerce um, and industry. And so all of a sudden, so this is, this is a little bit what we know about Nazareth, right? So all of a sudden, their hometown kid, Jesus is becoming something of a celebrity. I mean, there is a lot of buzz about him. And it's funny how we like, it gives us weird secondhand pride to be near somebody like that. Like my girlfriend, Karen, who's been my friend since college, she grew up in Joppa, Missouri. And she's always saying, you know, Brad Pitt grew up in Missouri. I'm like, I know, because you've told me a million times. Like, it's a wonder you didn't get married, you know? Just like we like to lay claim so you used your girlfriend's claim regarding Brad Pitt being from Missouri to help you illuminate by reading between the lines what's going on in Nazareth. Oh, boy. To Mary and Joseph's kid. They know him. They absolutely know him. They went to synagogue with him. Um, their kids went to synagogue with him, too. They grew up together. He and his dad made all their shelves and all their tables, right? They know Jesus. And now everybody is talking about him well beyond Nazareth. And it's exciting. It's exciting, and that's fair. Um, so I also want you to remember before we dive into what Jesus says, that the Jewish people at this point in history had been conquered and ruled by one horrible super world power after another for 800 years. I mean, we are talking the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and now the Romans. Okay, this is their entire history. You forgot the Greeks. Yeah, Alexander the Great. Yeah, you forgot those guys. The Assyrians. Yeah, and the Seleucids. Yeah, I'm just saying. Assyrians, the Persians, and now the Romans. Okay, this is their entire history, essentially. Um, so what we have in Nazareth is an overlooked town in an occupied country. So this matters. It goes to the, to the heart of the people. It goes to the way they are going to listen to Jesus's words today. So this is what happens. 
starting in verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, and here is where he quotes the Old Testament out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When the prophet Isaiah first wrote those words, he was promising comfort and restoration to Israel after being conquered and ruled and deported by Babylon and trying desperately to figure out how to rebuild Jerusalem. So those words were originally penned in a very dark day um, in their history. And so these are the, these are the same words that Jesus chooses to, to teach in the synagogue. This is essentially his inaugural speech. Yeah, a little bit of a note there. They followed a lectionary in, in the synagogue. That's the assigned reading for the day. This is his moment. This is his sort of coming out moment, and this is his thesis. So synagogue tradition tells us that normally a teacher would read from the scrolls, just like Jesus did, and then sort of offer some teaching on it. He would kind of stay up at the front and interpret it further or discuss it a little bit more. And certainly, I think with this much anticipation around Jesus, um, the people in Nazareth were probably dying to hear what he thought of this prophecy, right, that had now been unfulfilled for 700 years. So this is exciting. They've got like a real teacher in the room and they'd love to hear his thoughts. Is this going to be their time? Is this going to happen in their season? And this is what happens. In verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So I'm trying to imagine what it was like to be in the room when he said that. You know, what on earth must, uh, they're probably like, did he just say that and then sit down? What the heck? You know, like, I, I, I don't think there's probably any way they knew what that meant. How could they? How could they have actually known what they meant? So I'm trying to be in their heads. You know, are they... By the way, they would have known this is a messianic prophecy. Known what they meant. So I'm trying to be in their heads. You know, are they, is he claiming um, to be like the prophet Isaiah? Or um, does he know something we don't know? Like, have we been freed and we didn't get the news yet? Because he's like, it's fulfilled. You're free. You know, is there some... By saying it's fulfilled in their presence, Jesus is saying he's the Messiah. Yet? Because he's like, it's fulfilled. You're free. You know, is there some sort of situation that Jesus knows and they don't know? I think they probably sensed that something very wonderful was just promised, but they can't quite figure it out. Like, what do you mean? Surely, surely he's not claiming to be the Messiah, right? That's not what he meant, is it? And so meanwhile, Jesus is just sitting there. Like, what the heck? That is like an amazing moment. This is when I'm like, this is why I'm a Christian. Because that's my kind of savior. Um, just drops the bike and then sits down. Like, work it out. Figure it out. So, because he doesn't elaborate, and they have no idea what he meant, they resort to flattery. Okay? They didn't know what else to do. So, we find in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. 
isn't this Joseph's son? They said. So, bless him. I can't help but imagine that they probably wanted some of this kindness returned to them. And they wouldn't be crazy for thinking, I mean, after all, these are, these are, these are Jesus's neighbors. They're his classmates. They're his babysitters, right? They're his teachers. They're his parents' best friends, right? This is his, this is his hometown people. So this would have been the moment for Jesus to return the compliments, right? And to begin to show some favor to the community. They're like, oh, Jesus, you're such a good talker. Those words were so pretty. And, you know, and according, we know from the next thing he says, they at least wanted him to do some fancy miracles that they'd been hearing about, right? If anybody is expecting some special treatment, it's going to be his hometownies, right? So that's kind of, it's just sort of this like pause in the room. So he has said this wonderful, but also confusing thing, sat down and they're like, and? So that is when the story goes sideways. So... This is what happens next, starting in verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is that hard part of Jesus. Like, this is when you like the first half of this story, and the second half is bothersome, right? So um, in his inaugural speech here, which he picked this very much on purpose, nothing ever Jesus ever did was unintentional. He picks these beautiful prophetic words, and this is his key and clear point that he seems to be making. Now that I am here, good news, freedom, sight, and God's favor is no longer just for you. It's for everyone, right? That is his point. And so I think the interpretive cue here at the heart of Jesus's preaching on this text is who is identified as recipients of Isaiah's infinitives. So obviously, his neighbors in Nazareth, they wanted promises and praise. And instead, Jesus gave them a history lesson. And he says, okay, look, you know there were a lot of Jewish widows at the time, but God decided to send Elijah to a non-Jewish widow during the famine because she was generous. And he said, you know what else? There were tons of Jewish lepers. But God sent Elisha to a Syrian leper because he was willing to receive the healing. So in other words, the fulfillment of these promises also belong to people outside your town, outside your nation, 
outside your race. And shockingly, outside your face, right? Whoa. Now, there we have to draw the line. And let me explain. Christ is the Savior of the world. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, in Christ. Christ is not partial to any one particular tribe, nation, language, or whatever. You get the idea. But the thing is, is what she's doing is taking this text and stretching its meaning so far and so liberally that somehow Jesus is just utterly inclusive, and he includes a whole bunch of people, even the ones outside of your faith. No, 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 no. You see, this is where you have to draw the line. And see, there is a, there is a consistency between Old Testament faith in Christ. Abraham had faith. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. David had faith in God, and he too was saved by grace through faith. You read Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith passage, and it commends the patriarchs of old for their faith and says without faith it's impossible to please God. And all of them have the same faith we have. They have they are part of the same truly in the in the real sense of the phrase of the word. They are part of the same religion as Christianity is. Christianity is the new covenant that flows out of the old. And so there is a there is consistency that we are all saved by grace through faith. And then understand this. Here's what it says in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what Jen Hatmaker is doing is twisting this passage to teach kind of a postmodern universalism, this idea that somehow Jesus is, well, you know, the Savior of everybody, and he's come for everybody, and it doesn't matter what they believe, what their faith is, or things like that. Yeah, that's not what's going on in this text. And uh, I should, again, uh, remind everybody, she shouldn't even be preaching this sermon. God's Word forbids it. But we are up on our first break, and so we'll have to come back to Jen Hatmaker. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkmac at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Fire Christian. Quick break and we come back a little bit more Jen Hatmaker and then we're going to listen to the montage of subjectivity as it relates to picking a church uh, courtesy of Church of the Highlands. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. 
had enough of this sissy, brainsy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition. And in Lectio Divina, we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. What I say? You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was... Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? 
tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that women who preach in Christ's church are not truly embracing the entire package of what is revealed in God's Word. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Yeah, that's right. That's what they say. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. 
From there, Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and then Quartermaster ninety nine ninety five a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the become a patron button. If you would like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box one three three four four. Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly and honestly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's head back to Austin New Church. We've been listening to Jen Hatmaker, a darling of the evangelical movement, uh, who also is gay-affirming, shock of shocks, right? And uh, she's preaching a sermon and uh, now we've kind of steered into a strange space because this is the account of uh, Jesus t- preaching in his home synagogue in Nazareth. And her takeaway on this is that Jesus is saying that people outside of you know those who have faith in the one true God are somehow the people that he's embracing. That's not what Jesus <laughs> is saying at all, but uh, let's head back to Austin New Church. Here again is Jen Hatmaker. Stunning and maddening it was to hear that they were going to have to share these blessings and promises that had always been their own, belonging only to them, with people who hadn't suffered like they had suffered right? Or with people that had not been faithful all these centuries, like they had been faithful, or who had not carefully observed all the feasts and festivals as they had and their ancestors, or just at least tried to do all the things God asked them to do, right? Instead, it's like, it's as if you, it's as if you went to med school for 10 years and then some other guy shows up on graduation day, having never set foot on the campus and gets the same diploma, right? Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good analogy or metaphor because I wouldn't want to go visit that guy's doctor's office lest I, you know, a hangnail turns into a cancer diagnosis and then I die under the, you know, under the knife on the surgeon's table. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that weird that she thinks that that's somehow a legitimate thing. That's not what Jesus is saying at all, by the way, Jen. And then some other guy shows up on graduation day, having never set foot on the campus and gets the same diploma, right? I understand their feelings. I understand their shock. I think Jesus has zeroed in here on something his people then, but Christians to this very day still struggle with. Because not only do we want our blessings, but we want special access to them, and we want them denied to the wrong kind of people. We do. So here we see Jesus literally transforming the good news in front of their eyes, in their hearing. And isn't it interesting that good news for outsiders felt like bad news for insiders? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is weird. Yeah, weird to say the least because apparently we Christians, we, we just, we're just trying to keep God's blessings away from outsiders. Yeah, again, I would point that um, 
John 3 makes it very clear that those who do not believe in Jesus remain under the wrath of God. She's teaching a form of universalism here, which is an inherent feature of postmodern liberalism, which she is clearly a representative of. If it is not good news for everyone, then it is not good news for anyone. That's how it goes now. Uh, Yeah, that's not what Jesus was saying. By the way, you know, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Scripture does not uh, leave us wondering in this regard. Uh, The Apostle Paul made it very clear that the gospel that he preached, he did not receive it from a human being, but he received it directly via revelation from Jesus Christ himself. And that gospel that he preached is laid out for us in very clear and explicit words in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1. For context, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. There it is, good news, euangelion, that I preach to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And who did he receive it from, by the way? Galatians tells us he received this directly from Jesus. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the good news. And so Jesus tells the disciples then in Matthew 28... Uh, you know, to, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Yeah, that's right. That's call to repentance, faith in Christ, being baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That's the idea. So, you know, what she's doing here is she's taking this account and stretching it into some weird form of, of universalism. We continue. It's funny when I think about this, as he spoke this to his Jewish listeners, it's actually us, right, that got um, grafted into the story that day. You know, it's us he's including, saying this is going to go further than this nation um, when he originally said these words. But ironically, it seems like we now put ourselves in the favored group. Do you know what I mean? Like American Christians have now centered ourselves in the scriptures and believe we're the ones with special access to heaven. We're the ones getting it all right, right? It's us that God is talking about. Listen, this story is terrible, but I'm going to tell it to you. Um, so our oldest son, Gavin, is in college. He's at, he's at Texas Tech out in Lubbock. And last year... Yeah, let me just put it this way. This story kind of sums it up beautifully as far as how wackerdoodle and postmodern liberal Jen Hatmaker's theology is. So our oldest son, Gavin, is in college. He's at, he's at Texas Tech out in Lubbock. And last year, he was visiting churches as a freshman. So he called me one afternoon, and he's like, well, I walked out of a church today. I was like, that's something me and Sydney would do. Like, this is not your space. Um, and I'm like, what happened? So... Do you know what, do you remember what the shack is? Yeah, a heretical book that teaches universalism and twists scripture and has this bizarre depiction of the Trinity. I mean, just 
Yeah, we've covered it as well as uh, Paul Young's theology uh, extensively here on Fighting for the Faith. You can look it up in our archives. You know, you do a William Paul Young search at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can also search for The Shack at fightingforthefaith.com. And we've extensively covered the straight-out heresy that is taught in the book The Shack. Yeah, and also the heresy taught at, you know, by William Paul Young. So do you know what, do you remember what The Shack is? Okay, if you don't know it, it was a book that was written by Paul Young, maybe, heck, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago, um, in which it's sort of this fictional portrayal of um, one man's encounter with the Trinity in which he parsed out each Jesus, God, Holy Spirit in sort of a, a human rendition of him. And so we, they were portrayed as like an older African-American lady, portrayed as um, like a younger Asian woman, and then sort of a young Middle Eastern guy. So those are the characters that he assigns the pieces of the Trinity to. And last year or the year before, whatever, it was made into a movie. Well, listen, if you've not been around the Christian community for long, Christians clutch their pearls and everything. Okay, so if... Yeah, so pointing out the heresy that exists in William Paul Young's theology and in the book of The the Shack is the equivalent of Christian pearl clutching. Interesting. Uh Uh-huh. I don't even get it, but it did. When the book came out and certainly when the movie came out. So my son goes to this church and he says the entire sermon is about why no Christian person should go see the movie The Shack. And... And, and I said, well, honey, what did he say? He said, well, this is the moment that I walked out, was when he said it was um, unbiblical because, one, he had the audacity to portray a portion of God's character as female. Okay. Um, yeah, that's strange that you'd say it that way because, note, um, in Scripture— Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have masculine pronouns associated with them, which would make sense. And William Paul Young portrayed God the Father, the Father, as as a woman. And I think there's a big problem there. One, he had the audacity to portray a portion of God's character as female, Um, and second, because he had the audacity to portray God as a foreigner. Now that that's a, by the way, that's an absurd criticism. <laughs> you know, yeah, God is not an American. I, so if you're going to say, listen, this guy is out to lunch cause he's complaining that, you know, that God is portrayed as a foreigner. Okay, I can get that. I mean, that sounds like some, you know, pretty weird racist problems there. But the first criticism is straight up right, and William Paul Young's theology is heresy. I mean, like Jesus was born in Dallas. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, I'm taking crazy pills. So deeply have we centered ourselves in the work of Christ that we now think everybody else is the outsider. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. 
I, I laugh. Like, we're sending all these missionaries to Ethiopia, and they're like, we're in the actual Bible, you guys. Like, we have receipts, okay? Yeah, that doesn't mean that people in Ethiopia, just because they were born there, are, have penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So, in line with Jesus' own preaching on this text, we have to assume that these words speak not only of spiritual brokenness, but to the brokenness of this entire world. And that the recipients of these transformative promises, this absolute reversal of fortune, have to include those outside the fold. Yeah, but that's the thing. Everybody is outside the fold. And then when they're brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they're inside the fold. That's kind of the whole point of evangelism. You you, you see what I'm saying here? Outside the congregation, outside the denomination, outside the church, outside our experience, outside our understanding, right? And if that gives you like a pit in your belly, if you're starting to sweat, then maybe we can extend a tiny bit of grace to the Nazarites that tried to throw Jesus off a cliff, right? They were Nazarenes. Yeah, I I think you get the idea. And I know I went a little long on that, but I wanted to go a little bit long on that because I thought it was very important. Jen Hatmaker is theologically compromised beyond repair. She must repent of her postmodern liberalism, her false doctrine and false teaching, and repent of her preaching and teaching at all in uh, in a church. Preaching, yeah. This is a woman to be avoided, marked and avoided at all costs. I think you get the point. Moving along, we're going to be doing uh, a, a vision casting update, actually kind of playing a segment from... Uh, Church of the Highlands recent vision casting sermon. So let's do this.
tonight's the night I'm gonna take the word and twist it That's right. Los Lobos Ministry Records and their rendition of Casting Vision. So we're heading over to Church of the Highlands. The reason we're playing the Vision Casting Leader Update music is because this is the sermon from this past weekend, and the name of it is Vision Sunday 2018. And we're not going to be listening to Chris Hodges. We're going to be listening to what I'm calling the montage of emotion, the montage of subjectivity. And we're going to note here that uh, th- th- that this is designed to make everybody feel like, oh, wow, Church of the Highlands is part of some cutting-edge movement of God. And how do you know it's part of a cutting-edge movement of God? Well, you know, because feelings. <laughs> I'll explain as we go. Here is the uh, montage of subjectivity. We've been on staff at Highlands for about 11 years now. We came over in 2007 when the Tuscaloosa campus launched. I led worship as a volunteer. Six months later, came on staff full-time in worship and as an associate pastor. And then in 2009, became campus pastor in Tuscaloosa. During the time of 21 days of prayer, God just really began to speak to me. A big change is coming. Get your house in order. Get this place ready to continue on and thrive so my wife and I begin to pray about what that looks like and what that even. So you note here, uh, this campus pastor from Church of the Highlands, uh, you know, he, God told him big change is coming. All of this is feelings, feelings, this is all subjectivity. So we begin to pray, what does that look like? What will that? And you'll know this is just loaded with subjective buzz phrases. This is all emotion. This is all subjectivity. And if you want, you know, like a biblical example of, you know, how are you to gauge what's going on in a church? Is it of God or not? Well, I would I would start with Scripture, you know, so that you have something objective. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, uh, we see like the, the component parts of a healthy church in Acts 2.42 talking about the new converts to Christianity there after the day of Pentecost, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
to fellowship, koinonia, that's the, you know, fellowship there, the breaking of bread, which would be the Lord's Supper, and prayer, and the prayers. All right, so apostles teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, and prayer. Those are your kind of component parts. And so devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching would require you to attend a church where the pastor is rightly handling and preaching and teaching God's Word, and not doing it piecemeal, but doing it, you know, literally, you know, wholesale, going for it, you know, not holding anything back, preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God, and he's known for his accuracy, known for rightly dividing the Word of Truth, somebody who is a skilled exegete, and somebody who proclaims and placards Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so then you'll note then the Lord's Supper is important. Prayer and true fellowship are important. Those are going to be your component parts for whether or not a church is a healthy church. And that's just an objective standard, an objective look at, you know, how do you know if this is a good church or not? But what we're hearing from this campus pastor, utter subjectivity decided to come down here and pray about the Mobile Bay area of the state that has been in our pastor's heart for a long time, that has been in the heart of our people for a long time. We came down here in June and just began to pray, watch the sun rise over the city in the distance. That was the moment as the sun came up that the Lord just dropped into my heart that this was it. This is where we're supposed to be. This is the... Mm -hmm. So the Lord dropped that into your heart. Notice the buzz phrase there, evangelicalese. It was dropped into my heart, and of course, it happened during the sun rising, you know? Oh, man, the sun's coming. Oh, see, and then boom! You know, something just dropped right into his heart. Uh-huh. Again, note the subjectivity. That was the moment as the sun came up that the Lord just dropped into my heart that this was it. This is where we're supposed to be. This is the change that he spoke of almost a year prior to that. God has something big in store for this region that's going to impact so much more than just right here. We're really believing and praying it's going to be an open door for amazing things to happen all over the state. And every Yeah, again, notice he's now claiming that he's feeling that this is what's coming. This is the montage of subjectivity. And in this particular case, the subjectivity, these feelings are designed to create a sense of anticipation that Something, 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 God's going to do something. We, we, we don't know what it is, but it's a something, something, you know, it's really important, something that God's going to do. Feel that passion for this area. They've been praying for it for a long time, and it's hard for that to not be contagious and to get into you. I've moved to Mobile 40 years ago. In 2006, our daughter was going to UAB, and we had heard about this church in Birmingham called Church of the Highlands. And she asked me if I'd take her to the service, and I saw God moving in the church. I knew it was... You did. You saw God moving in the church. What does that look like? Uh, You know, seeing God moving. You'll know another evangelical buzz phrase here, and it's pure subjectivity. What does it even mean? I mean... If I were in a place and I was seeing God moving, what would that look like? And called Church of the Highlands, and she asked me if I'd take her to the service, and I saw God moving in the church. I knew it was something special. Through the years, we were going back and forth. We started visiting once or twice a month. We watched services online or in person. 
every time we did the annual survey of where would you like to see the next campus, we always put Mobile on there. But in the meantime, we were praying because we knew Mobile needed what Birmingham had. From the moment we put that button on the website, if you're interested at all in the Mobile Bay campus, click here. Over a thousand people in just a few months clicked that and gave us their information. And we've been able to build a launch team of 250 plus people. And so the response has just been amazing. We were sitting in a Sunday service there in Gadsden where we were serving, and Pastor Chris was giving the vision about what we were going to do the following day. Pastor Chris was giving vision. Where in the Bible does it say that pastors are supposed to give vision? Yeah, and so when a pastor gives vision, by the way, he's giving what he feels God is saying to his heart. Again, subjectivity. Nothing objectively biblical here. Being and being a part of this amazing launch with this campus, we are living out our purpose. We're walking in the plan that God has laid before us. So by participating in the launch of the Mobile campus of Church of the Highlands, that's your special and unique purpose that God made you for. That's the claim there. How did you discover that this was your purpose? Well, all feelings-based. Launch Day was an incredible miracle. It was such a success in every way. People went through the growth track. People made connections, made relationships, got plugged in. Worship was just off the charts. That room was just full of the presence of God. You could... mm, It was just full of the presence of God. How do you know it was full of the presence of God? The reason I ask is because Jesus says that when he sends the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin and unbelief. So you knew the presence of God was there in the room because of all the people who were cut to the heart and recognized and realized that they were sinners in need of a Savior and were calling out, brothers, what shall we do? And you were telling them to repent of their sins and to be baptized and to be forgiven. Is, Is that how you knew that the, the, the presence of the Lord was just in the room? Worship was just off the charts. That room was just full of the presence of God. You could just see it on people's faces. That's Right, so you can see it on people's faces. Subjectivity again. That sense of thankfulness and the prayers being answered that they've prayed for so long. God loves the people of this area, but we want to reach them all. We want a dream center. We want campuses in multiple places in this area. What's a dream center? Been built of prayer to see that through. We want to see lives change. We want to see people going through a process of coming to know Christ in a meaningful, intimate way. There's people who would call themselves very religious but don't necessarily have a deep love, personal relationship with God. We want to come alongside other churches who are doing it well and help people really come into a deep love relationship with Jesus and not just... A deep love relationship with Jesus. Sounds like you're turning Jesus into my valentine. ...side other churches who are doing it well and help people really come into a deep love relationship with Jesus and not just a church experience. Come on, give God all the praise for that. that Yeah, so there you go. The uh, montage of subjectivity. And wow, just loaded with all kinds of subjective buzz phrases from 
today's evangelicalism and none of them actually mean like anything. In fact, they could mean just about anything. But it it sure does make you feel like God is somehow a part of and blessing and moving what's going on at Church of the Highlands. Yet over and again, when I review the sermons and teaching coming from Church of the Highlands, it's objectively provable that it's far from biblical. I think you get what I mean. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're heading to Elevation Church to listen to Sarah Jakes Roberts and her sermon, Everything Must Go. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, exclusive Skype interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. All right, we're back. 
number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Do this right, though. the bad the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via elevation church sarah jakes roberts that's right the daughter of td jakes delivering the sermon at uh, elevation church what does that tell you about the theology of stephen Furtick? And the folks there at Elevation Church, they're not solid at all. They are in open rebellion against the clear and explicit prohibitions laid out in Scripture. So that being the case, we're going to listen to the sermon and we'll also critique the message itself and see if we can note whether or not Sarah Jakes Roberts is rightly handling God's word. If you're wagering, don't wager in her favor. That would be an unwise move. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. Let's head over to Elevation Church. Here is Sarah Jakes Roberts. Can you make some noise? That was okay for me. Can you make some noise for Jesus now? Yeah, it's weird. The sermon begins with, can you make some noise for Jesus? Is anyone to be in the church of the living God. You could be anywhere else, but you have decided to be in the presence. Make some noise so heaven touches earth. Make some noise. So if we make noise, heaven will touch earth. Yeah, that's some weird theology. Till demons start trembling and chains start breaking. Make some noise like you're going to slay your giants or your you're going to slay your giants. See, we're allegorizing the Bible already like in the initial hoop-de-doo, hoopla, whip him up into a frenzy phase of the sermon. Weird. Don't have to. Yeah. Elevation is one of the most amazing churches in the world. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not a church. World. In the world, and I consider it an honor to be here before you guys today. I've been studying, I've been praying, I want to get right into the word if that's all right with you. And I know you've been standing a long time, but I'm going to be standing a longer time. (laughs) Someone stretch your hands towards my feet, amen. I'm going to be in Matthew 26, verse 69. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Yesterday I 
was reading the word and I told people to sit down and get comfortable if they would like. But then I learned that you all actually stand for the reading of the word. So I'm going to ask that you honor the custom of this house. Verse 69 begins and it says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And verse 71 continues, it says, And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Verse 73 says, And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, I love Peter. (laughs) I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. My subject for those of you who take notes are everything must go. Everything must go. So God, we welcome you to continue to fill this atmosphere with your word and your truth. You are the only one who can take one message and allow it to hit everyone in different ways. You are the only one who knows every need, every burden, every issue that came into this room. And you and you alone can speak breakthrough and power and victory and healing. And so, Father, we welcome you to inhabit every part of this room, every soul that came in here. Because we recognize that when you do that, we are forever changed. And so we're asking that this would be one of those moments where we walk out of there and say, God, you heard me, you see me, and you know the plans that you have for me. God, I'm asking to be your vessel, that there will be no nerves, no anxiety, just your spirit standing tall in me so that lives may be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Not off to a good start. Yeah, this is a vital text related to the suffering and passion of Christ. And his trial and Peter's denial of Jesus. I, boy, I'm already nervous as to where this could go. Now you can get seated and be comfortable. There are very few words that bless my soul as a believer like the following three. Everything must go. Those words bless me, not just... What on earth do those words have to do with Peter's denial of Christ? Because of the reason that I found when studying, but when I see them on on a store, it, it speaks to me that God is really looking out for my finances in this season. Say, God, I prayed for savings and you put my favorite store on sale. How great is your mercy towards me? Everything must go. And that used to make me so excited because I knew that when I walked into the store that they would be willing to discount even further items that I had been waiting to get for a very long time. And so when I went home and I told my husband that I finally got something that I'd been looking for, I could tell him, but honey, it was on sale. And so we saved money. I didn't spend money. 
Now that I am a business owner, though, I realize that when they put those words outside of the store, it's not just because they want to bless my spirit, which is fascinating. (laughs) They actually do that because they have new inventory coming in. And because they have new inventory coming in, they have to get rid of everything that is no longer profitable so that that which is profitable can take its place. What if we as believers started to treat our life with that same level of philosophy? Uh, what does this have to do with Peter's denial of Christ? That we looked within ourselves and said, everything must go that is no longer profitable so that that which is profitable can come in. How- yeah, is that how Christian sanctification occurs? How powerful would we be if we looked at our bitterness and said, no, you can't stay because you're taking that place where my joy could be. What if we looked at our misery and said, no. What if, what if, what if? Yeah, if it was just this simple, then, you know, why haven't been Christians been conquering sin in this way for, you know, two millennia? You can't stay because you're taking up space where my purpose could be. What if we started to say depression? You can't stay here. Joy is in your place. You got to make room and everything must go. This is a mindset that we should have. But because we don't always have this mindset, God creates these situations, these scenarios that force us to put that which is no longer profitable on sale so that it can be stripped away to make room for what is profitable. When we find my friend Peter in this text, he is going through that exact process. Now, because (laughs) he is, how do you figure? We've heard this story so many times, it can be easy for us to believe that he's going to be all right in the end, but that's because we know the end from the beginning. But imagine with me being Peter in this moment. This is not the same Peter who's walking on water in front of Jesus. This is not the same Peter who is watching Jesus perform miracle after miracle. This is a a defeated Peter. This Peter left everything he knew when he began to follow Jesus. He was connected to hope. He was connected to faith. He would see signs and wonders all of the time. And now all of a sudden, that which he knew so well, he is disconnected from. And in the process of being disconnected from that faith, his change begins to occur. And he's no longer the person he used to be. I know we'd like to say that that is exclusive to Peter's experience, but if we are honest, we look back over our lives and we recognize that there are moments where I used to be so full of faith. I used to be so connected to my faith. There was nothing off limits. I had faith for my marriage. I had faith for my children. I had faith that that dream, that purpose was going. Did you have faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life? Because it sounds to me like you're using your faith in order to create a new reality. But, you know, rather than actually, you know, praying and asking God and humbly waiting for his response or help. 
be manifesting that it was going to change the world. And now I'm just lucky if I get from day to day. I used to have faith. I used to believe that I could do absolutely anything. But for some reason now, I'm connected from my faith. What I love about this is that for Peter, his faith was taken from him. His hope was taken from him. Have you ever had hope just stripped out of your hands? I thought that things would be one way, but one phone call, one incident, and now all of a sudden, all of my faith has been stripped away. I never thought that I would be the one going through a divorce. I thought that we would make it to the long haul, but my faith got stripped away. I never thought that I would be the one who didn't know how I was going to make ends meet. But for some reason, my faith got stripped away. When we find Peter in this text, his faith has been stripped away. And when your faith is stripped away, it changes how you see the world. It changes how you engage and how you interact. There are people in this room who haven't really felt like themselves in such a very long time. And if we retraced your steps and retraced your history, we would find that it was all because of one incident that changed the way you saw everything. I witnessed something and... I saw the worst of people, and when I saw the worst of people, it made me stop believing in the best of them. And so now I've become a cynic, disconnected from hope. And every time I close my eyes at night, I remember that person I used to be. But as I was praying and I was pressing in, I felt like God was saying that everything must go. Okay, so she pressed in, not sure what that means, and then God said, everything must go. So now this is a direct revelation from God himself. That everything that is not profitable, that everything that has no no value for what he wants to do in our life has to go, that maybe just... You know, maybe, just maybe, there might be some biblical texts that actually say something akin to this. Maybe as we filter through our lives and we filter through our memories and our emotions, we will recognize that we picked up some habits and some patterns and some thoughts that we shouldn't have. And we're at a season right now where I can't go to next unless I clean out back there. You, you can't go to next. What on earth are we talking about here? Peter is in between the cusp of walking with Jesus and becoming the rock in which Jesus would build his church. Actually, the rock that Jesus built his church on was not Peter. Are you Roman Catholic? The rock that Jesus built the church on was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it's not actually that he's disconnected from his faith. It's not that he's disconnected from Jesus. It's just that Jesus is shifting. And as Jesus is shifting... Jesus is on trial. What do you mean Jesus is shifting? Jesus is about to shift into being dead. Peter is having to elevate who he is as well. Sometimes God just moves on you. What on earth is this woman spewing? And it's not that he's lost. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's him saying everything must go so that everything can grow. If I don't move from... Uh, 
I, I'm going to have a hard time getting through this now. You're used to seeing me, then you'll become one of those complacent churchgoers. And I called you to be a kingdom agent in this world. So, so God's calling people to be kingdom agents rather than churchgoers. What are you talking about, lady? Ending your capacity. I'm trying to see how hungry you are to hear from me. I'm trying to notice she's talking for God here in this little litany of hers. How desperate you are to get a word from me. So I'm not staying within reach. I'm trying to stretch you into the next dimension. Peter, I know you're used to walking with me, but can you press in and show me that you have taken in what you used to once take for granted? Yeah, note that she's ignoring the biblical text where Jesus restores Peter after Jesus rose from the grave. Now we're coming up with a whole new problem, whole different solution None of these are found in the Bible. I hear God saying it's in you. No, God's not saying any of this stuff. I hear God saying that you were depending on faith in one arena, that you thought your help came from a job, not recognizing that he's going to be your provider. So I stripped the job away so that you could see man didn't have to write you a check, that I would make a way for you to make it anyway. I hear God saying I had to move. You, you heard God saying that, really? Uh, God's word teaches us to work and that the way God provides for us is through our labor in our jobs. Some people out of your life because you were beginning to worship them. And I need you to know that at the end of the day, if all you have is me, that that's more than enough. There's a greater is he mentality that is coming back into your situation. And I had to strip some things away so that I could grow and increase. Notice she's speaking for God in this litany. She's speaking for God in first person, too. Anyone uncomfortable with that? I sure am inside of you everything must go everything must go i won't be satisfied with this message until you leave here desperate to clear out anything that's taking up unprofitable space down on the inside of you anytime a negative thought starts rising up until you say everything must go god renew my mind and give me a mind like christ i can't afford to have this stinking thinking any longer i'm trying to press towards the mark and i yeah she's not a pastor she's a motivation speaker that is for sure and do it thinking like the same girl i used to be everything's gotta go everything's gotta go every hater every doubt every fear every insecurity yeah those haters have got to go you know the people who are trying to probably get you back grounded into some form of reality Loose my mind. Did you know that you have authority to roll up on your own depression? Can I get a little hood at elevation for a minute that you can roll up on? Yeah, this is all emotional manipulation here. Your own issues and say, devil, I've had enough. You can't have me any longer. Who the son is set free by God. I take authority over my mind. I take authority over my situation. Loose my child and let him go. Let go of my husband in the name of Jesus. Let go of my husband in the name of Jesus. What on earth? He gave me power. He gave me authority. And I'm tired of acting like I don't have it any longer. It's got to go. Get off of me. Notice that's not 
prayer. I don't know what that is. It's got to go. It's got to go because I'm ready to grow. It's got to go. It's got. Yeah, this has everything to do apparently with uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. It was all a part of a everything's got to go so that he can grow moment. Oh, it's got to go. It's got to go. It's got to go. I'm going to move on, but I'm speaking to your demons. You got to go. You got to go. You got to go. You. You're speaking to demons now during the sermon. Yeah, that's not weird at all. To go. I didn't just come to church to clap my hands and walk out feeling good. I came here to wage war on hell. You gotta let me go. You gotta let my country go. You gotta let my finances go. And anything that's keeping me from recognizing what he can do through me has got to clear the way. Everything. Everything's gotta go. Gotta go. Everything. So my friend Peter is in between walking with Jesus and becoming the rock in which Christ will build his church. But in this moment, he's lost and he doesn't know what to think because he's been disconnected. And so Peter... Um, how about he like denied Jesus three times, you know, making it sound like, well, he'd been disconnected makes him sound like a victim rather than a perp. I love this because before any of this happened, they're at the last supper and Jesus says to Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Peter was like, child, I would never Ever, you my boy. We've been rolling, man. But he says, I see something in you that's got to come out of you. Uh, no, Jesus didn't say that. You've just added it to the text. It's got to come out of you in order for you to access the next dimension of who you are. Uh, uh, no, Jesus didn't say anything about Peter accessing the next dimension of who he is. What translation are you quoting from, uh, Sarah? And so I have to move myself out of the way. Because if I don't move myself out of the way, then you won't deny me. And then that issue won't rise to the surface. I'm pretty sure that the reason why Jesus was denied is so that he can go to the cross and bleed and die for all of our sins. Mm -hmm. And if that issue doesn't rise to the surface, I can't build my church on you. Uh, Jesus didn't build his church on Peter. He built his church on Peter's confession. So God moves things out of the way so that our issues can rise to the surface. And I just want you to know, because some of you got so many issues rising to the surface right now, that you're ready to give up. So many memories and thoughts rising to the surface. But what I love about this is if Peter gets this out of his system, this denial out of the way one time, he never has to be the person who denied Jesus again. Um, what is this theology? That if I confront what's in me, then it makes space for what's on me 
to reach its fullest potential. And I know that some of our family... Yeah, let's actually take a look at a biblical text here now, because this is really getting just way astride of what God's Word says. After Peter's denial... Jesus said he would deny him three times. Peter denied him three times. Peter fled and wept. Now, after the resurrection, Peter is one of the first people to the tomb, sees the empty tomb. Jesus makes a point of letting, you know, of, you know, telling somebody to let Peter know that he had risen from the grave. He wanted him to know that. Jesus appears later that day in the upper room to all of them. But there is still some unfinished business. Remember, Peter denied Christ three times. And here's what it says in John chapter 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, the Sea of Galilee, which is where the disciples had gone because Jesus told them to go there. And uh, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, the text says. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. He was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciple, uh, revealed that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? A little bit of a note here. The word that Jesus is using for love is agape in this question. Do you agape me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I, and then Peter uses a different word for love. You know that I phileo, that I I have brotherly love for you. It's not what Jesus asked him, right? So he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape you agapo oh, me, love me. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo, that I have brotherly love for you. Note, Peter isn't quite answering the question. So he said to him, tend to my sheep. So he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Now Jesus changes the words. He uses the same word that Peter used. Do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to them the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And you'll note that Jesus' words to Peter, follow me, were the exact same words that he initially spoke to him when Peter first became a disciple of Jesus. By doing so, and note the three times here, you know, Three times Peter denied Christ. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And with that, he is restored. And Jesus again says to him, follow me. This is the reality then of what Scripture reveals regarding the fall and the restoration of Peter after his denial of Jesus. Three times, thrice denial of Christ. And what Sarah Jakes Roberts is preaching, I have no idea. She, it's like she's purposely manipulating everything for the, for the point of like getting people as worked up and get as many applause lines as possible. But rightly handling the account of Peter's denial and subsequent restoration by Christ, this isn't even on her radar. She's just used the occasion of the text to basically assert her own theology. And some of us are more comfortable when we don't let those issues rise to the surface because we want to avoid conflict. But as long as it exists within you, then you are conflicted and divided. And we have to be united if we want to be powerful in the kingdom. Because there's enough outside that's willing to divide us that we can't go into it already divided within ourselves. And so Jesus says, I see potential in you where I can build my church on you, but first you have to deny me so that you know what's in you. Jesus said nothing of that sort. What is this? There are some things that you won't even realize are in you until you're placed in situations that bring it out of you. I didn't know I was crazy. I didn't. I would have never thought it was possible for me until someone said something to me. And I was like, wow, I'm about to be crazy because it's in me. But once it got out of me, it taught me something about myself that I can't afford to be connected with people who bring out that side of me. And so all it took was one time for me to see what was capable for me to make a decision moving forward to make sure that that never sprung out of me again. And so when I find Peter in this text, he's in between and, and he's got this spirit of disconnect between him and Jesus And it's funny because at this moment, he's sitting outside in the courtyard and like so many of us do, he's thinking about what's wrong and what's not working. And this servant girl, she comes up to him and she says to him, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. And it was interesting that he responded and says, I don't even know what you're saying. For me, this was a testament of how disconnected we can become from what we once knew. What does that even mean? And you'll note that the Elevation bullpen is working overtime today 
basically going, ooh, wow, whoa. Yeah, those are volunteers who sit in the front part of uh, you know, the auditorium there. And th- their, their whole job is to basically make it sound like whatever point the, uh, the person preaching is making, uh, you just react as if it's the greatest profundity ever spoken by any human being and do it with gusto. That's also part of the manipulation that goes on at Elevation is their bullpen. Because the worst thing that anyone wants to be reminded of when things are not working is a time when they once were working. I know you guys don't get angry with people because you are saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. But have you ever been having a little bit of a disconnect with your husband and then Facebook brought you a memory of when you wrote that love note on Valentine's Day? And you scrolled super fast past it like, not today. Not today. When this girl comes up to Peter, she reminds him of a time when he used to have more faith. Weren't you with Jesus? I know everything is falling apart right now. I feel that for somebody. You, you, you feel that for somebody. Note the uh, manipulative subjectivity here. Do you remember the time when you were really with Jesus? I mean, like when you really would go into your prayer closet and you would wake up thanking God that you just had another chance to lift your hands and worship. This girl reminds him in the midst of his most broken moment. Remember when you used to have faith. Remember when you were walking with Jesus and Peter says, I don't even know what you're saying. My mind can't even comprehend in its current state a time when I used to be walking with Jesus. I am denying that part of me. And when you deny that part of you, you push away your very own breakthrough. What? When I deny a particular part of me, I end up pushing away my breakthrough. Where'd you get this theology? I can't afford to, to think about that time. He says, I don't even know what you're saying. And, and then it continues. He, he moves outside of the courtyard because what happens to so many of us is we try to move out of the way of people who remind us of who we used to be. Because I can't afford to have anyone calling me higher when all I want to do is be broken down where I am right now. And so he moves out of the courtyard and then he runs into another girl. And it was at this point in the text when I realized that it wasn't just Peter running away, that it was God chasing him down. Because you want to talk about triggered. If I could trigger a time in Peter's mind when he used to walk with me, then maybe I could get him back in the mindset of what it was like to hear from me. Where in the text does it say that God was running Peter down in order to trigger in his mind a a time when he had more faith and stuff like that? What's the point of having a Bible if you're just going to make up your own stuff? Even if I was telling him what he didn't want to hear. Because if I can get him to remember when he was connected to me, perhaps he could reach even further back and remember that I plan on building my church on him. So even in yeah, again, Jesus built the church on Peter's confession. 
middle of this brokenness and what seems like the end, I still have a plan, even in the midst of this breakdown. Somebody's been in a breakdown. And I came all the way from Los Angeles to tell you that God has been trying to get you to reach back to the promise and to let you know that the bet is still on. I know nothing in the circle right now looks like it's still happening. Uh, Reach back to what promise exactly? But I'm telling you, I know that I know that I know that the bet is still on. How do I know? Because you're still here. And because he is not a man that he shall love. I don't care what the stats say. I don't care what your account says. I don't care what your mind is saying. If he said it and spoke it over your life, there is nothing that can wage war against his word. He set the ocean in motion and it's still rocking at the same beat. He put the sun in the sky and it hasn't fallen out yet. All he did was speak a word and it was true. And if I can get back into the position where I received the word, where I used to hear from him, then maybe he could help me navigate through this season that I'm in. Before it's all said and done in Matthew 26, he's tried to run outside of the courtyard to avoid anyone who would remind him Of who he used to be. This is the part that got good to me in verse 73. He says, a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them for your speech betrays you. That thing was good to me, child. Listen, trying to say it the way I thought it because I'm at elevation and I can't afford to be confused on this stage. So y'all bear with me. They said that there's something about the way you're speaking that lets me know that you were once with Jesus of Galilee. They're talking about... Uh, no, you see, it's it has probably to do with the Galilean dialect or accent. What are you talking about? his accent. They're talking about the way, the cadence that he begins to speak. That even though he was he was departed from him, even though he was no longer connected to him, that what was around him ended up getting in him and began to change the way that he spoke. Which means that even when he tried to change his mind, he couldn't change his spirit. That he... What? been around Jesus, but Jesus had gotten down on the inside of him. That means that even though you've got one side of your mind trying to deny, there's another part of your spirit that knows who you are. That somebody's praying, grandmother, changed the way you spoke. That somebody messed around and got connected to elevation and it changed the way you speak. I know you say that your life is over, but your speech is betraying you because you still drug yourself into church, limping, but you're still here. You still drug yourself into the presence of God. This is one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. I mean, her taking Peter's Galilean accent and turning it into some weird narcissistic application like this. This is this is nuts told everyone else it was over, but your speech is betraying you. I think you have more hope than you're letting go on. I think you have more faith than you would allow us to believe your speech is betraying you. Everywhere you go, your speech is betraying you. It's saying that you're still chosen. It's saying that you're still called. It's saying that no weapon formed against you will prosper. It's saying that your heart... This, this, this is just narcissistic 
is going to be healed. I know you say you're giving up, but you're still writing those songs like you're hoping one day you're going to get discovered. I know you said you gave up, but your speech is betraying you. And because your speech is betraying you, I can tell that you've been walking with Jesus and that he got in you. And this is the moment that makes Peter begin to weep because he is reminded in that instance that Jesus said this would happen. I didn't think it was in me. I didn't think it was possible, but he knew me better than I knew myself. And while I'm sitting here having a pity party, he sent these people to remind me that even though I was going to deny him, that I would ultimately come back into alignment with him. Um, n- no, you'll note that this then turns into the third time Peter denies Christ. Where are you getting this material? Because none of this is actually in the biblical text. And when I came back into alignment with him, that it wouldn't be so that I could go back to being the disciple that followed Jesus, but so that I could be the rock in which Jesus built his church. Again, uh, the rock that that Jesus built the church on was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's better than y'all clapping, but that's all right. Because what I'm speaking about is acceleration. That we're praying that... Acceleration. How are you seeing acceleration in this text? And what on earth is acceleration? Things will go back to what they were. But God is planning to take what was and accelerate it to what he said it was going to be. What a load of nonsense. It's still better than y'all clapping. Because I want you to. No, this isn't clap worthy. And if it weren't for the fact that you have a, an entire group of people who are volunteers to make you look good you know, via the bullpen, I, I mean, some people might actually sit there and go, huh? But there's a generational blessing connected to you breaking that generational curse. What? That's still better because if you understood. That when you got finished going through this, that no one in your family was ever going to have to go through it again. You would start praising God for your children's children's children. It's still better than y'all clapping because hell never wanted you to know this revelation. They wanted... Really, yeah. Hell was trying to keep all this from us. (laughs) I'm pretty sure all these doctrines have their origin in hell itself. Acceleration was impossible, but they didn't want you to know about the God I serve. So they sent a message through my friend Peter, letting you know that you're still a rock that this earth is going to have to reckon with. And there is deliverance connected to you. And all of this happened when Peter was in his most broken state. All of this took place when Peter felt the least connected to Jesus. I reckon that while Peter was weeping, that heaven was rejoicing. Seems like such a... How how do you figure? (sighs) 
No tech says it, but I mean, she's pretty sure that was what was going on there. Oxymoron. But the moment that that denial occurred and it lifted off of him, the moment that he had reached rock bottom, I can't go no lower than this. And God said, that's great. Because the lower you are, the deeper your foundation can be. She's like the machine gun of nonsense. Kind of put some weight on top of you. And I can't add that weight to a weak version of you. I got to add that weight to the most humbled version of who you are. I got to add that weight to the most broken version of who you are. So the deeper you've been broken, the greater that foundation is going to be. Why do you need a great foundation? Because there are great heights connected to your name. And if God would have blessed you when you wanted him to bless you, you would have flirted with pride and ego. And you would have thought that you did something to earn where you are. Yeah, she's just adding all kinds of stuff to the biblical text here. Yeah, just Grab some popcorn. This is really bizarre. But he wanted you to be so disconnected from where you once were. That when he pulled you up, there was no doubt in your mind that had it not been for the grace of God that was on my side. I know who I am and I know where I am has nothing to do with who I am because I'm crazy and I'm unreliable, but he trusted me anyway. I know who I am. I don't deserve to be on sacred elevation, but he saw past all of my insecurities and uh, you, you're saying you don't deserve to be on stage at Elevation. Let's make this perfectly clear again. God's word forbids you from preaching a sermon in any of Christ's churches. Just want to make that clear. All of my fears, and he chose to use me anyway. I know that I had to get a mindset that everything must go. And when I became desperate for more of him and none of me, that's when I became the vessel that he could use. I know who I am. I don't deserve it. I couldn't have earned it. But still, the reckless, come on somebody, the reckless love of God, it chased me down. It chased me down. It chased me from the courtyard to outside the courtyard. And he kept reminding me that you used to be with Jesus before I formed you in your mother's womb. I knew you. You used to be with me. You are from me. And don't let this world make you think that you're not a part of me any longer. Where is uh, the uh, doctrine of original sin, our separation from God, and uh, our being under the dominion of darkness as a result of sin, and then Christ setting us free, regenerating us, bringing us to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? Yeah, this whole litany, this part of her litany, seems to be contrary to that. I'm trying to get you back to what I first knew when I saw you. And in order to do that, we have to let go of what has been imposed upon us, what our emotions and our experience would have us to believe. And so here we are, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. What? I feel the presence of God in this place. Yeah, no, that's another form of manipulation. 
No, that's when you know, her claiming she can feel God's presence. Why would God the Holy Spirit, you know, bless elevation with his presence in the midst of a sermon that is added to scripture, taught false doctrine, preached by a woman, which God's word explicitly forbids, which means the Holy Spirit himself has forbidden it. Why would the Holy Spirit show up for this? That it's time for us to remember constantly that I am a living sacrifice. I hear God saying that it's time for us to return to the heart posture of worship. It, that, so God's telling us to return to a heart posture of worship. What does that mean? Where I wake up each and every morning and I open my... Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit's now falling on the audience. And of course, she's declared that she can feel the Spirit there now. Self up in such a way that I say, God, there's nothing off limits. Not this bitterness, not this brokenness. Because bitterness feels like warmth when you're afraid of trusting other people. But you need other people in order for you to make it in this thing called life. So you're going to have to be willing to trust again and open your heart up again. You're going to have to believe that he makes all things new. And so Peter became new in that moment when he was reminded of what God said. He was reminded of what Jesus said about him. Where in the text does it say that Peter became new in that moment? I'm not familiar with that text. What I wanted to do when I came here is remind you of what Jesus has said to you. And to remind you that no matter how disconnected you may feel. What exactly did Jesus say that you're trying to remind them of? From that word that he promised you. That you're going to make it. That your heart is going to be healed. That your children are going to be saved. That there is a lane that he has cultivated that only you can feel. That you Really, Jesus is telling people there's a lane that's been cultivated that only they can fill. Where does it say that? Anyone else's success or anyone else's envy that I promise you, I still got you. And all I'm waiting for you to do is give me full reign to the inside of you so that I can. Oh, see, yeah, God, God's going to do those things. But yeah, he's waiting for you to give up full reign. False theology here. I want to pour into you. I hear God saying your capacity is about to increase in a way that you never thought was possible. Really? God's saying that. No, he's not. I had to increase your capacity, so I had to break you down so that I could make more room. That's really good. I feel that for somebody. No, that's not good at all. And stop manipulating these people by saying you feel that for somebody. I had to increase your capacity, and I did it through breaking you down. Now you're stronger than you ever thought you would be. I know it doesn't feel like it because you're in your most broken moment, but I feel strength coming back to you. I feel resources coming back to you. There are people having conversations about... This is exactly what it means to scratch itching ears. 
you, not the you you are right now, but the you he's called you to be. That person is still down on the inside of you. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as your heart still has a beat, then there is a greater version of you yet ahead. Oh, really? There's a greater version of me ahead. What on earth? When you decide that everything that's in me, that's keeping me from reaching the next version of me, has to get out of the way. Because I'm not going to live in this world and just survive. I'm going to live in this world like a kingdom kid. Like somebody who understands that he spoke a word and brought me into existence. God, please reattach me to the word. God, help me to see who I am again. God, I can't do this thing called life without you. Your strength, your wisdom, your power, your grace, your mercy, your anointing is the only thing strong enough to break the yoke. Oh, yeah, she's just filling these people's heads with other nonsense, but doing so in a way with the band playing behind her that this is going to be one of those inspirational, spirit-filled moments that's going to change somebody's life for exactly 20 seconds. For my life, I submit myself to you, oh precious God, that you are. Have your way in my life is only you can do. Until chains start falling off of me. Until demons start backing off of me. Until my past can't hold me any longer. Everything must go. Everything must go. Everything, 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 everything. It's got to let me go. It's got to let me go. I got to get my mind back in the game. It's got to let me go. I got to fight for my marriage again. The heartbreak has got to let me go. I got to be okay that you walked away from me. I got to forgive you. I got to let it go. It's got to go. It's got to go because it's keeping me from knowing him. It's keeping me from having greater. It's in me. It's got to go. If it's okay, can I just give one person who needs it 10 seconds to worship? To ma- yeah, if you, if you need a good 10 seconds of worship, she's going to facilitate that now. Whatever. With heaven. To ask God to make space. Down on the inside. I know you're ready to get your brunch, but if I could just give that one person who needs it. 10 seconds, maybe 30 seconds to lift their hands in worship and profess with their mouth that I don't want to fall in love with this pain anymore. I want to find out the purpose behind this heartbreak. I want to know why you kept me alive, God. I want to know why I'm still in this thing. I want to know why I still have passion. I should have given up. Everyone else rejected my idea. But I still have passion to see your kingdom come in the criminal justice system. I still have passion to see your kingdom come into the industry. God, he's, please, please. Give me a divine exchange. Uh, isn't the divine exchange Christ's righteousness for our sins? He bleeds and dies for our sins. We receive by grace through faith his righteousness imputed to us as a gift. Of your spirit. Let it break down my walls. 
Let it arrest every thought that's not a reflection of who you are. God, I need your spirit to forgive. God, forgive what exactly? I need your spirit to break addiction. I can't do it by myself. I tried and I've still been in it. But if you would speak a word, if your spirit would breathe down on the inside of me, I'm crazy enough to believe that it would push away generational curses, that it would help me to forgive. I'm crazy enough to believe that you're still... Where is repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and Christ crucified so that we can be forgiven? In the miracle business, and some people need to see it. I need to be a miracle. I want to look down at my soul and wonder how I got over. How did I get over you leaving me? It will be because of the grace of God. How did I get over me losing my family? And I will say it will be because of the grace of God. And not only did he get me over, but he restored everything that I thought that I had lost in the fight. I didn't even know I could get my life back. I thought cancer had taken it. But I look back over my soul and I see that cancer was lying on me. That I can still... Cancer was lying on you. ...have joy in the midst of my pain. I look back and say divorce was lying on me. I can still have joy after heartbreak. I almost lost my mind, but I'm still here. And it's because of the grace of God. And I made space for Him. And when I made space for Him... Uh, so when you make space for God, God will make space for you. Yeah, I don't know. And I am a living witness that no weapon, no demon, no devil, no lie could ever go to war. With what he's spoken, spirit of the living God. We need you. The next dimension of you. I know who you used to be. The, the next dimension of God. And that was great for who I used to be. But I need to know who you are now. So that I can be everything that I need to be now. And so God, I ask that you would begin to fill us with fresh fire, fresh fire. Yes, fresh fire. Yeah, that's what we need, fresh fire. Yeah, we're done. And this is just utter pablum, and now she's just spewing charismatic buzz phrases and talk about a complete botched handling of the biblical text, which God's word forbids her to do, in a sermon, so, yeah, I mean, this was rebellion all around, including the doctrine. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.